You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Driving Law podcast. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law and with me, my co-host... Paul Doroshenko. Sitting right across the desk from me in our new office. <laughs> it, when you say our office, it does feel like our office, considering we're kind of sharing an office right now. Well, we still have a lot of stuff to do. We've got uh, art to hang, mm-hmm. uh, decisions to make with that, and so there's a lot of stuff stored in what will ultimately be your office, and so we are sitting right now in what will maybe one day either be your lounge or my office, depending on how things go. Yeah. So, but point is, we finally have somewhere to call home, and mm-hmm. we've been uh, we've been uh, adrift <laughs> for for months and months and months after we were uh, uh, evicted, so they could turn our old place into condos. Yeah. And now here we are. Here we are, and here we are with the Driving Law Podcast. A bit of an interesting podcast today because we're going to actually give an update on something that has a saga that we've been following. Okay. There's a few sagas we're following, Uh, so I'll I'll wait to hear. So uh, this is the ongoing saga of um, the traffic ticket case where um, a BC, former BC lawyer, was, oh, this is Sheldon Goldberg. Sheldon Goldberg was asked to join, um, uh, essentially attempted to represent somebody while not being a lawyer and while enjoined from practicing law, but then sort of started to say that maybe he was the person who had committed the offense. It's a camera ticket. Um, uh, very uh, unusual set of circumstances that has recently resulted in a very strange application by Mr. Goldberg to have the judge in uh, the BC Court of Appeal recuse himself on the basis of alleged bias. Okay, so where are we so, on this thing? So we go from a, a, a red light camera ticket, which has no points, $109, fine, all the way to the Court of Appeal, on a recusal application, which I love. I love that this stems from a simple, fine traffic ticket with no further consequences. But what does Goldberg have to lose? Like, he's got nothing to lose. Nothing he's, to he's lose. Not, I mean, is he going to be fined? No, I don't know nope. what provisions. The owner of the vehicle under. gets fined. No, I mean, for like his crazy, you know, <laughs> attack here. Like, what? he has nothing to lose. There's nothing to stop him from doing all of the things that he's doing. Yeah. So he brings the application um, to the BC Court of Appeal, and the decision is rendered by uh, Justice Frankel, who is the case management judge for three applications that Mr. Goldberg has brought. Um, Justice Frankel has been case managing them since April 2022, and uh, the officer... um, Sorry, I just got a phone call and the, the message was likely fraud on my phone. So, okay. <laughs> distracting there. Um, and the Court of Appeal uh, starts out its reasons 
by saying, In 2000, a jury convicted Alan Arthur Dunbar of first-degree murder. So we've now dragged in a first-degree murder appeal into a traffic ticket dispute. Dunbar is a... Well-known case to uh, lawyers. <laughs> well, it's, it's also a famous name in Vancouver because there's a Dunbar Street. It's a, you know, if you're in another town, you probably know that there's locations and street names that are connected to names that have historically become associated with the region. Mm-hmm. Um, in any event, yes. So, convicted of first-degree murder and... And in the course of the... Mm-hmm. Appeal of the murder conviction, Mr. Dunbar had been represented by Sheldon Goldberg, who then, um, on his appeal, argued that Mr. Goldberg was incompetent and hadn't represented him properly in effective assistance of counsel. The Law Society had to produce records related to Mr. Goldberg, who was deemed to have been um, professionally incompetent in the course of representing Mr. Dunbar. Um, he was given a three-month suspension, and then he resigned from the Law Society, likely facing disbarment for other things. Those were my <laughs> observations when I went to watch him run a trial. Uh, I remember one day Mr. Goldberg was uh, representing someone in two courtrooms on two trials and running back and forth from courtroom to courtroom. What, you're saying you can't do that? Court, well, the trials were going on, conducting a little bit of trial in one courtroom, a little bit of trial in the other courtroom. <laughs> At which point, Judge, I think it was Judge Godfrey, clicked in that what was happening. Um, uh, I just need to stand down for a minute, uh, Your Honor, and left. And didn't appear to have read either file. I mean, I often have multiple matters in multiple places. No, But, but usually you, I'm pretty forthright. I'm like, look, I've got another matter in courtroom 204, so I'm just going to pop over there. And then I'll be right back. I know, but you don't have three trials or two trials full on criminal trials running. Yeah, no. Sometimes it'd be two traffic tickets at the same time, but that's easy because you can have them both move to the same courtroom. Exactly. Um, in any event, <clears throat> the uh, the poor Dunbar matter is still ongoing and has now been joined with this traffic ticket matter for the purposes of case management dealing with Mr. Goldberg and his applications. So we have a simple traffic ticket joined with an application involving a murder conviction. Well, that's because Mr. Dunbar's got a petition in the D.C. Supreme Court to compel records that's still, I think, underway, right? Yes. So there were three or four things that Mr. Goldberg wanted the Court of Appeal to do for him. Uh, The first was to accept a 49-page handwritten affidavit. Now, for the uninitiated, affidavits in B.C. Court of Appeal must be typed. They've had to be typed for a very long time now. That's the requirements. And That's not too onerous. <laughs> and they are capped at 30 pages. I think that can be too onerous. I think there can be circumstances where you need more than that. Sure, and you can apply in those circumstances for a longer affidavit or a longer, um, a longer factum. You could, um, you could add a lot of attachments. You could. You, there's lots of things it could do. So his affidavit, his 49-page handwritten affidavit, was accepted by the registry as received but not filed. He asked for it to be admitted in uh, the substantive appeals. He asked for the judge uh, to replace himself with another judge and recuse himself on the basis of bias. And he asked that the Dunbar murder appeal and the Tran traffic tickets be heard together, 
and all of them be adjourned until dates after Mr. Goldberg was supposed to have surgery. The last request, perfectly reasonable. The surgery yeah. aspect. Yeah. I'm well, I, I'm, I'm just suspicious of anything that Sheldon says, of course. I don't know that I would believe that he has surgery scheduled unless he's had evidence of it. Well, the court does ultimately <laughs> grant that request. <laughs> But the recusal application is what I wanted to talk about because it's freaking hilarious. Yeah. So he wants Justice Frankel to recuse himself because of Justice Frankel's former involvement with him, not directly, but tangentially. So uh, first he says, it's wrong and it's unfair that I have to prepare a typed factum. He doesn't say why. Uh, he was already given a direction by Justice Frankel to do this and at the time didn't object. And he sell, says in this new application that the reason he didn't object was that he was in shock that he should be asked to type a factum. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's obviously summarily dismissed as these are the rules of court. Literally everybody else complies with them. It's not an unreasonable rule. It is not an unreasonable rule. And if you can't type it yourself because you lack typing skills, it's super easy to hire somebody to type it well, for you. Well, not hire somebody. Find somebody family, who will volunteer. Family and help member. You family grandchild. Member. Yeah. There's a, there's a, Do you know an eight-year-old? There's an individual charged here with a traffic ticket, and there's uh, Mr. Goldberg. All of those people yep. probably have family members who could type it. Yep. It's okay if there's typos in there. Yep. So the next thing is a case that Justice Frankel was not involved in. And again, mm -hmm. for the uninitiated, Justice Frankel used to be a federal crown prosecutor. So he dealt with a lot of drug and gun files. Um, and... He dealt with a case, he didn't deal with a case involving a man named William O'Malley. And Justice Frankel doesn't even remember the case until he read Mr. Goldberg's factum. Um, Mr. O'Malley had pleaded guilty to a charge of conspiracy to import cocaine. Um, he was convicted at, uh, at trial on the basis of his plea. There was a sentence appeal that wasn't successful. Many years later, he applied for an extension of time to appeal his conviction. Uh, alleging that his lawyer was under the influence of drugs and alcohol. Um, the extension was refused. Uh, he applied um, uh, to review that decision, which was dismissed for want of jurisdiction. And as Mr. Goldberg says, because Justice Frankel was working in the Federal Crown Office at the time that these applications were being brought, he would have been privy to discussions in the office that he characterized as scuttlebutt. And there was a connection between it and Mr. Dunbar's appeal, because on appeal, Mr. Dunbar was represented by the same lawyer who represented Mr. O'Malley. And so therefore, Justice Frankel would be biased against Mr. Goldberg. <laughs> okay. The second argument that he advanced that made Justice Frankel um, biased in his opinion was that he wouldn't be able to keep an open mind because Mr. Goldberg had a bad reputation. Not a bad reputation from his findings of professional incompetence, which are publicly known. Yes. But instead a bad reputation <clears throat> because he used to refuse to accept service of documents on behalf of his clients. So as you know, in drug... But, but how is that... How is he... Okay. All right. Well, now I'm, I'm questioning Sheldon Goldberg's argument here. There is no point in questioning it. It's okay. Not so a it's, it's it's absurd. It's um, absurd. The uh, and of course, so 
when you're defending drug cases, the um, Department of Justice serves you with um, with the the test results in a certificate form to confirm that the substance was whatever the substance was. Yes. Um, and um, you know, lawyers just routinely accept these things uh, on behalf of their client, and it's really not an issue most of the time. Although you did some fancy fancy thing. Uh, about eight years ago, where you compelled them to give more evidence about it, which was great. But uh, in any event, we just accept them. It's never, you know, it's never an argument. Mm -hmm. uh, but Sheldon apparently refused to accept them back in the day when he was a lawyer. So he is saying here that he's got a bad reputation, and and Frankel would know about that because he refused to accept certificates with respect to yes. what the substance. He had a was reputation. A reputation for refusing to do that. All right. Now, okay. So, just, I, I'm sure I'm sure Justice Frankel could deal with that fairly. Yeah, <laughs> fairly easily. he's like, this has nothing to do with anything in this case, so it's not even relevant. Keep, but, keep in mind, everyone, this is a driving law case because this yes, all starts with a, starts with a with photo photo ticket. red light camera ticket. Camera ticket. And, and this is you, your taxpayers are paying for the court and the judge. And, Justice yeah. Frankel has spent multiple days hearing this ridiculous nonsense. So, third thing that he says he should recuse himself is because back in 1977, before okay. I was even alive. Well, I was already getting old. <laughs> back in 1977. Mm, nine years old. Mr. Goldberg had a case where Justice Frankel was the prosecutor. And in that case. They must have been in their 20s. <laughs> In that case, there was an issue about service of uh, documents being accepted by Mr. Goldberg. And in the course of argument, Justice Frankel referred to a case called Boyd, which was decided in 1975. And in Boyd, the court was critical of Mr. Goldberg for the little games that he was playing in relation to accepting service of certificate evidence. In 1975. So he refers to a two-year-old case in 1977 to say, look, he's doing the same thing again. And Mr. Goldberg has apparently been hanging on to this for the last 30 years. 40 years. 40 years. 44, 40, <laughs> 46 years. It was 45 mean-spirited. And Justice Frankel was because he was mean to him that one time. He wasn't even mean to him. He referred to a court decision quite properly in the course of his submissions as Crown for similar facts. I didn't meet Sheldon until 1999. And, uh, of course, you don't know all the history of people at that time. <laughs> but, yep. uh, yeah. Yep. So there you Saw go. Saw him regularly at the courthouse. And still have a very clear memory of him, I guess. So maybe he has a very clear memory of other people as well. Anyway. So this is this is the recusal application. He was mean <laughs> to me one time. And it was a subjective perception of mean because it wasn't mean. The paragraph 46, the uh, Justice Frankel says, Some 45 years ago, I referred to Boyd when Mr. Goldberg attempted to withdraw admissions made by his client's previous counsel. The reasons in Boyd were responsive to and refuted the argument Mr. Goldberg was making. Referring to a relevant authority is not mean-spirited because it contains language unfavorable to opposing counsel. Such are the vicissitudes of litigation. 
In any event, no reasonable and informed person would think that what occurred so long ago could affect my present ability to deal fairly with Mr. Goldberg. I just think of, like, there's times that lawyers have done something to me that I thought was completely off, and there's been times I've done things I'm sure that there's other lawyers I was dealing with on the other side thought were completely off, Yep. and I would never, ever, ever think that that was going to taint their capacity down the road to deal with a matter that involved me. Yep. I can see that there might be people who have biases against me for other reasons, but not because of something during the course of my dealings as a lawyer. Yep. Um, and uh, if I was, uh, I will never be on the bench, but if I ever had, <laughs> if that opportunity had been part of my future, which it won't be, um, I uh, certainly wouldn't have uh, ever been in a situation where I would have felt that I could not um, deal fairly. Yes. Fascinating, though. But Sheldon comes up with these crazy non-argument arguments that uh, never seem to go anywhere. Yeah, I mean... But I, and I don't understand what his end game is here. Because ultimately, this guy is not going to succeed in his red light ticket because of this. No, he's... And none of this... I, I don't know, like, perhaps the end game is to make the court biased by making them all hate him for bringing stupid applications like this one? Well, I can tell you that there probably is a... a before Sheldon even starts speaking, um, his reputation of just generally among the bar is there. Uh, but there's been lots of lawyers whose reputation was tarnished in one way or another, and they still seem to, you know, get a fair hearing for their clients. Yep. Um it's not always the case. Sometimes you have a bit of an uphill battle. Uh, the, uh, the reputation of your lawyer, unfortunately, as I know, can sometimes hurt you. Yeah. Uh, but the um, the uh, for the most part, uh, especially when you get to uh, Justice Frankel at the Court of Appeal, I don't think you're going to find that. No. So there you go. Now, speaking of ridiculous applications, let me ask you a question, Paul. What would driving law possibly have to do with public health orders? Oh, yeah, okay. Well, I think I know what you're talking about. I think I know what you're about to talk about. Um, the, uh, so there's someone who is not a driving law lawyer and not a, not a driving law article student, uh, not, a, not a driving law expert, but who has some connection to traffic court um, but uh, is apparently uh, not just leaving it at that. Yes. <laughs> is that um, what we're talking about? That is what we're talking about. So the Law Society back um, in, I guess, 2020-ish, um, created something called the Innovation Sandbox, which is meant to be this thing that addresses what the Law Society perceives to be gaps in access to justice. Um, by allowing people who are not lawyers to provide legal services in a limited capacity uh, for the purposes of assisting more people to access justice and to access legal services. And, I mean, not its face, it sounds like a great idea, except for, as you and I have talked about on the podcast previously, some of the gaps that they perceive to exist are not gaps in access to justice at all and are, in fact, met by people the law society just doesn't think about and doesn't know exist. Us. There is, there is, <laughs> and, a, and like five other firms yeah. in BC that, oh, yeah, that and, deal with this, and then various lawyers that will, will deal with it if asked. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, there's definitely a missing middle 
when dealing with the law society where they look at, you know, legal aid and public service or public interest lawyers as one level of service. And they look at big firms and high priced fancy firm lawyers as another level of service. But they miss all of the lawyers in the middle, like our office, where we provide legal services at affordable prices that the regular person can manage. And there's literally like a thousand lawyers out there yeah. who are doing it. We are the middle we are <laughs> you, the middle class we, law firm. You can find them all across the province. <laughs> thousands just, of them. We are a little more prominent. Yes. So among the things that the law society thinks are access to justice gaps are traffic court matters. Which is fascinating. So the way it has been expressed or the way I understand it has been expressed by them in the past was that lawyers were too important to be going to traffic court and therefore people couldn't get lawyers for traffic court and that it, it was all so important. Um, so which important. is absolutely so insulting yeah. and ridiculous. And we go to traffic court and we deal with traffic court and we run trials in traffic court and a lawyer is necessary to deal with that stuff in traffic court because people's lives and livelihoods are on the line. Yep. Huge implications. Um, but there's no shortage of people to do it. However, um, there has been in the past a attempt by various individuals to um, undermine the role of lawyers in traffic court by having just paralegals or what have you yes. um, come and do traffic court. And among them was an individual by the name of Jeremy Maddock, who we've talked about on the podcast before. And Mr. Maddock um, was actually um, the subject of proceedings by the Law Society to stop him from practicing law because he started representing people in traffic court as a legal consultant. But it was essentially performing all of the services of a lawyer. And it's now, such a strange case because so he's gone to law school. Um, he you know, did he's have got, his articles. He's got connections with with lawyers, he has no, you know, there's no inability for him to to go and uh, and complete his articles. Although now he's, you know, had orders against him from the law society. But I even uh, asked But him. even that, even that, they will he, still they let would him. let him. So um, that then he stops so practicing. It is, it is completely unclear why he's doing this. Maybe yeah. he doesn't want to have a trust account. I understand that. You don't have uh, to. Have maybe a trust he doesn't. Account. Yeah, you know, I, the, maybe he just doesn't want to be regulated by the law society. I can understand that too, but that's not a, you know, we all have to accept that. If you're well, going to provide legal services, I asked those are the it. things said, that you've got to live with. I said to him, why don't you just get called to the bar? And he said that he didn't agree with, like, the basically it was like a free man of land thing, not wanting to be regulated and thought it was bad for the public. I don't see how that makes any sense, but that was what he said. Yeah. So that was... Jeremy Maddock. Now, he did submit successfully an application through the Innovation Sandbox at the Law Society of BC and was permitted to provide legal services in two categories. One, research and writing services of a home-based contract employee under the supervision of practicing lawyers with yeah. any documents drafted requiring review and approval from a supervising lawyer. And two, Motor Vehicle Act violation ticket disputes none of which include appearing in a hearing on behalf of the disputant, so he can negotiate, basically. Or or review the person's material. Disclosure. And, but I don't know how he can give legal them. advice. Well, he's allowed to give legal advice under the Innovation Sandbox ex box okay. exception. All right. All right. But the 
thing that I find fascinating about this is that this is a person who's basically going to people who are dealing with motor vehicle related traffic disputes, um, which involve a number of different legal areas. We've talked about this on the podcast before. It's not just going to traffic court and representing somebody in a trial, which he's not allowed to do, but it's also reviewing disclosure, providing legal advice, drafting affidavits for applications through the registry for um, uh, for unwinding deemed convictions, filing adjournment application materials, preparing and submitting disclosure requests, and if the applications uh, for unwinding deemed convictions are disallowed, preparing petitions to the court. And it's in this context that this relates to driving law. Well, there's also all the charter violations that can take place in a traffic court. Oh, yeah. And charter issues in a traffic court case can be significant um, and can affect the admissibility of the evidence. This is also somebody who is essentially allowed to be paid by lawyers to do legal research and writing for them and to draft documents, and who therefore is expected to have some level of knowledge in relation to how documents are drafted for various proceedings, criminally and civilly, that lawyers might have to deal with. And the documents are significant, right? If you don't name or serve the right party, that can result in your case just being struck from the court list. If you don't file the correct evidence, if you don't know what evidence is necessary, that can result in you losing your case. Which brings me to the case of Maddock and British Columbia, 2022 BCSC 1605, for those who want to read. This was one of four challenges that were released earlier this week, in which Challenges to the public health orders, specifically around proof of vaccination to go to restaurants, bars, clubs, that type of thing, um, in which those laws were challenged. And Mr. Maddock is one of them. He challenged them on the basis of the fact that he could no longer provide his innovation sandbox services because sometimes he would have to meet his clients at restaurants. It's not clear why that would be necessary. Okay. Considering you could just phone them or do a Zoom meeting. And so because he couldn't go to restaurants to meet his clients, because he chose not to be vaccinated, the uh, government was violating his Section 7 right to life, liberty, and security of the person by impugning his economic freedoms. Well, this is a stretch. (laughs) Yes. Now, the law has very consistently recognized an important proposition, Paul. Yes. Section 7 of the Charter does not protect economic interests. No. (laughs) It protects your security of the person. Now, could mandatory vaccination policies impugn upon security of the person? Absolutely. There could be. Sure. There could be. You can imagine all sorts of circumstances where they could. Yes. But Mr. Maddock had no particular medical condition that made him ineligible to be vaccinated. He provided absolutely no evidence in support of his petition that occupied a whole day of hearing time with the Chief Justice in Victoria. No, No evidence as to how vaccination would cause him harm acknowledged in the hearing that he was eligibly vaccinated and this was merely a personal choice. He was vaccinated? No, he he was not not vaccinated. Personally chose to refuse to be vaccinated, which I found very interesting, incidentally. Because isn't that consistent with his whole, like, I don't want to be governed by the law society? Yeah. I I don't want to be governed by anything. Yeah. I I don't really want to participate in 
very much free man on the land vibes going on. Um, so he challenges this, but he loses. And he loses. And it's pretty sad, I think, in the judgment, because it talks at paragraph 38 about how he graduated from law school, never took the steps to complete articles or qualify for admission. He's a self-described legal consultant. Um, he talks about his innovation sandbox. Like, I think he did himself significant reputational damage as a legal consultant by bringing this application. Yeah, there's so many questions I have there, but, you know, my biggest question always is like, you can make a living as a lawyer. There's costs and expenses to it. It's not always a wonderful thing, Nope. but why don't you just go make a living as a lawyer? Well, <laughs> like, I don't, I've, I've never understood this guy. I've read and paid attention to the judgments related to him, and I've talked to some people who he'd represented prior to the injunctions, and what he was charging was no different than what we charge. Yeah. So it's not like a philosophical, you know, dislike of legal fees being too high. Yeah, his fees were the same. I mean, he's getting away with not having to pay insurance and not having to pay for all the things that we have to pay for. Sure, um, but that's just more money in his pocket. No, I know. That's why I'm not saying, like, helping you, you, access you are, to justice. You are right. It's not an issue of. It's not an issue of. Uh, but what I of, find of him providing greater access to justice to people. What I find very interesting is not just that they brought in the fact that he's you know governed by the innovation sandbox rules, but also decides just to not comply with the law because he feels like it, um, and try and challenge it with no foundation. It's that he tried to challenge it with no foundation. That he brought a charter argument that was obviously doomed to fail. And that he didn't file the necessary evidence that concerns me from the driving law perspective. Because this is something that obviously was personally important to him. So important to him that he didn't get vaccinated even though it had an economic impact on him. Yeah. So you have to think that that has to be at the core of whatever personal beliefs he has. And if that's at the core of his personal beliefs and that important to him, then what about cases where it's not as important to him because it's somebody else's life and livelihood on the line? If he's bringing applications to the court with no evidentiary foundation and with a complete misunderstanding of the charter, where is that line when it comes to the services that he's providing for traffic ticket disputants? Yeah, I, I mean, I was upset that the Law Society created this sandbox because um, I don't think it's a very effective way, and I didn't see the hue and cry for it. I also note that neither you or I were consulted. Maybe you were, and you can't disclose it, but I, I certainly was not. Um, and we are in traffic court all the time. We are, have been consulted on other things, but not this. Um, the uh, And it's known that... that um, we have taken issue with this characterization. Uh, so you would think that we would be consulted. Yet they appear to have consulted him, um, who who has run afoul of the rules by not even following the starting point mm -hmm. rules. Uh, and here we have him making a um, completely meritless application seeking charter remedies um, in his own case. Um, you know, it kind of makes the point that we've been making from the start that there has to be some sort of regulation and their sandboxes just inviting people to do things like this. Yeah. 
you know, it's basically their sandbox system is inviting the free men of the land to start becoming quasi-lawyers. Yes. And I don't know. I just, I, I just worry, you know, when this innovation sandbox was first announced and when this application specifically was allowed, I published an article in the Lawyers Daily as well as in the Verdict magazine, two different articles on my concerns about it. And I see them manifesting here. Like I see a manifestation of what I was worried about, which is if you're not going to allow yourself to be governed, then competence, your competence can never be put into question. Well, now let's get back to the final wrap-up point of this, which is Sheldon Goldberg was a lawyer, and he was a lawyer for decades. <laughs> exactly. And he was a lawyer yes. for decades, and nothing happened to stop him from being a lawyer. This is the and one I have time. to say, I've seen so many times that I was in court that I saw Sheldon Goldberg doing what I thought was completely inappropriate and wrong, uh, but nothing stopped him from doing it. Yet there's all sorts of lawyers who you know face regulation and and submit themselves to that regulation, whereas, you know, Goldberg was often avoiding it, um, and uh, who probably generally do a very good job. Um, and it's uh, just maybe a difference of opinion with the Law Society on their role and, and uh, the Law Society. So we've got the ungovernable Sheldon Goldberg, mm -hmm. and then we've got uh, this uh, Jeremy Maddock, who is just not even going to submit himself to be a member to be governed yeah. <laughs> and, and uh, maybe he could have been the next Sheldon Goldberg if he just uh, became a lawyer. And the thing is, I suspect despite all of this stuff, he could still probably apply and yeah. become a lawyer, which is a, a fascinating thing uh, in itself. <laughs> you, you could do that. Yep. So that's that. Now, that we've talked a lot about that. I'd like to switch to something that I won't say is related any in any way, because I don't want to get sued, um, even though the joke is there and it's so funny, yep. which is a bunch of dildos. <laughs> well, it's not just dildos, Kyla. It's also lubricant. So yes. some people lubricate the dildos. <laughs> Time for the, the Ridiculous Driver of the Week. <laughs> Ridiculous driver of the week. I'm not sure this is necessarily a driver, um, but it's a good enough ridiculous driving story. It's ridiculous. Sure. So there was a driver involved. There were, in fact, two drivers involved in a crash, a rollover crash on I 40 in Oklahoma uh, Wednesday this week. And uh, God's country. God's country. And I'm sure God must have had a hand in this because <laughs> the um, one of the vehicles that was involved in this collision, the one that rolled, was a transport truck. And it uh, was carrying a heavy load of equipment. Yeah. So it had dildos and lubricant. Dildos, yeah. So boxes, sex toys. Boxes and boxes, boxes of, of sex, sex toys, toys that spilled out of the truck all over the road scattering across the roadway. Um, and if you Google this, I mean, you could literally just Google dildos spilled on road and you'll probably find it. Well, we've been trying to get that actually into the podcast for a long time. Because we just like saying the word dildos. Yeah. There's a few words that we've, we should you know, go to into. Dildo, Nova Scotia, and or Dildo, Newfoundland, whatever, Dildo, it's the town of Newfoundland Dildo. and Labrador. Yeah. Dildo. We'll People who Dildo. come from Dildo. Or Dildo. Um, a, a male from Dildo is a Dildo man. 
<laughs> in any event, um, there's a great video of uh, the scene, which is funny. But even more funny is the local news in their like traffic chopper reporting on the accident without realizing what's on the road. And then as the news person is realizing, trying to describe it without describing what it is. Um, yeah. There you go. Well, that's a good, ridiculous driver story. Ridiculous driver of the week. Um, I am very happy about it. It sounds like there's some construction that's about to happen around us here in the new office. Things are still happening. So time to wrap this up. Okay. Well, uh, thank you for tuning in to another episode of Driving Law. If you need to reach us, you can give us a call at 604-685-8889. Or find us online at VancouverCriminalLaw.com and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law.